When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 453 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is just Adam, all by myself today for the intro, and then I'll get into an interview in just a short moment, which is with Robin Schneider. Uh, she has written a ton of really, really great best-selling books. Um, you're, you might recognize her from the beginning of the beginning of everything, Extraordinary Means, uh, Invisible Ghosts, and her new book is called You Don't Live Here, uh, which which just recently came out. Uh, we had so much fun. We had a very, very long Zoom call that I edited down for the actual podcast, but um, just know that Robin and I had talked for like an hour and a half and just had a great time, became really fast friends. Um, this conversation gets into a lot of really interesting aspects of storytelling. Um, we get into telling stories in the aftermath of tragedy as opposed to focusing a story on the tragedy that happened, how we got into both of our college experiences and how those decisions kind of shaped who we became as adults a little bit, even though neither of us really considers ourselves adults, which we get into as well. Um, never giving up on her on her experience and her life and her passion for being a writer, even though after she had a few uh, and like really early on successful signings to sell some books that didn't turn out as, as well as she thought, but then coming back to them. And then also because she has a, a scientific background, which we get into um, approaching books from a scientific side of things, like doing a, a fiction autopsy is what she calls them. So kind of putting story structures on a sheet of paper and really examining them. It was just a really, really great conversation. Uh, something else I wanted to point out is this was recorded before JK Rowling uh, went on social media and then wrote her, her piece um, you know, kind of coming out against the idea of transgender human beings. And um, I, we talked a whole bunch about on our last week's episode about all the transgender titles you could check out. Um, but this was recorded before all that. And obviously, we're, you know, we're on record of, like we said, we loved the Harry Potter stories. And, and you, can, you can love a story without loving the people that created them. Uh, Robin is the same way. She and I are the exact same age, and she also grew up in the Harry Potter world. So we talk a little bit about Harry Potter things and our, you know, our previous passions. Um, but I removed a question or two at the end of the podcast where we talk a lot about J.K. Rowling that we, you know, formerly really appreciated and respected her, and you know, unfortunately, we've kind of lost those those feelings. So I edited that out, and Robin asked me to do that. You know, one of the things you'll notice is uh you know Robin's books are very pro LGBTQ you know the the main character in You Don't Live Here is bisexual um Robin identifies as bisexual as well so um it just you know in this time and in this month we didn't want to shine a light on uh the people who are putting negativity on the world we'd rather shine a light on the positivity and all the great things so we mentioned last uh last week if you want some more information about how you can support the LGBTQ people in in your community, uh, you can go to the Trevor Project. It's a really great way to do it. Um, or just check out your, you know, your local, uh, you know, versions of these different places. There's a lot of community centers here in Ohio and in Northeast Ohio, where I'm from, 
that um, are helping out in the individual communities, but the Trevor Project is a great place to start. So um, that's all to say, just wanted to let you know that at the end, it may sound like there's a few quick cuts, and there are, um, that we wanted to kind of remove some of the conversations about uh, J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter for the time being. So yeah, uh, that's just about everything. I think you guys are really going to love this conversation. Like I said, we had a blast. I f it felt like both meeting a new person and catching up with an old friend that I've known for years. So Robin is fantastic. She's a gem. And I can't wait for when we're allowed to travel again so I can go find her and actually see her in person at one of these many events we go to. So, okay. Not going to wait around anymore. If you want to contact us, professionalbooknerds.com is where you can find us or at ProBookNerds on Twitter and Instagram. And with that, I will let you get to my conversation with Robin Schneider on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. <laughs> Everybody, it's Adam again. I'm by myself today, and I am super excited to be chatting with Robin Schneider, who is the best-selling author of *The Beginning of Everything*, *Extraordinary Means*, and *Invisible Ghosts*, uh, all of which have earned numerous starred reviews and appeared on countless state reading lists. And are published in over a dozen languages. And her new book, which we're going to really get into right now, is called *You Don't Live Here*. And we are much like the rest of the world, chatting over Zoom. So, Robin, first off, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, I'm so excited. Uh, so we always love having our authors kind of kick off our conversation by talking about their latest book. So can you introduce our listeners to You Don't Live Here? Sure. So You Don't Live Here is a contemporary YA romance. Um, it's about a girl named Sasha who survives a fictional, very terrible earthquake and her mother does not. And she winds up having to move in with her estranged grandparents in a wealthy conservative suburb and is stuck in sort of a repeat of her mother's life, um, her mom's teenage years. So she thinks uh, her grandparents are pretty controlling. They have a lot of ideas of who she should be and they don't exactly match up with who Sasha wants to be. And a large part of that is the fact that she is bisexual and she develops a crush on the girl next door. And her grandparents are dead set on them dating, uh, on her dating uh, their friend's grandson, Cole, which doesn't exactly work out. Uh, if you read the book, you'll see why. Um, so I like to think of it as my queer love letter to Gilmore Girls and the OC. So if you took all of my childhood teenage years, like TV obsessions, and you put them in a blender with all of the exciting things that are happening in YA fiction uh, right now, uh, you would get this book. And hopefully that's what I wrote. <laughs> so something I really, really love about it is you, know, you take a, a unique experience. Not everyone goes through a earthquake and not everyone goes through the you know, tragic loss of their parents. Uh, but you use that as like a framing structure for something that I really feel like all teenagers go through or at least to some extent like having that parental or in, in this situation grand grandparental uh expectations versus sort of like following your dreams like you know what made you want to explore that that feeling that like I said I think admittedly a lot of us do go through in our teenage years Sure. Um, well, I've always been drawn to stories that happen in the aftermath of tragedy, because I feel like when something really terrible happens to you, it is so easy to think, my life is over, it's the end of the world, I should just give up, like, what is the point? And I love stories about characters who pick themselves up and 
who use whatever terrible thing happened to them as sort of a pivot point to figure out really crucial things about their identities and their lives and what they want to do with their future. Um, I think it's just a lot of stories about depressing themes can wind up depressing. And I like to tell stories that are ultimately hopeful, um, but also aren't entirely fluffy. And for me, I think I had a bit of an existential crisis for a number of years. I think really from like when I was 18 until, well, I think I'm still going through it. So <laughs> my existential crisis is literally a teenager at this point. Um, but I was always just so unsure what I wanted to do with my life and how to get there. And I knew how other people saw me and I knew what they envisioned for my future and my career and my life. And a lot of the time my heart felt like it was tugging me in a different direction. And I wanted to explore what that feels like and what you do with that uh, through fictional characters so that I could maybe trick myself into following my own advice. <laughs> Well, and I mean, it's really hard because if you think about it, when you're 17 or 18 years old and your brain is still developing and you think or you know you have aspirations and passions, like you said, I, when I was that age, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a living. I love my job, but I still, you know, think of myself as a kid now, even in my, you know, in 34. Oh, and me too. I am also 34. And I think we are allowed to just divide that in half and say that we are as unsure as we were at 16 still. And we just sort oh. of paused. Perfect. Okay. Well, I'm going to take that. I'm, yeah. Then as so as 16 year olds here, I, I still feel like we're, but you know, I feel like you're, it's at that age when you need to, if you're going to go to college, figure out where you want to spend the next four years of your life and how it's going to shape you and what you're going to study. And what you study is, you know, what people expect to be the thing that you, you use for your entire life. And at the same time, you are a lot of times dealing with parents who say, or again, grandparents who are like, you should be a doctor or you should be a lawyer. And it's like wrestling with how strong your emotions and feelings are when you're a teenager. Like I feel like that's like the most we feel is because we're feeling so many things for the first time. And yes. Then, oh my gosh. You know, it's like, you, you're like, it's your first quote unquote love. And it's your first, you find out what you're passionate about. And then to layer on top of that, someone else saying like, no, you, you need to be doing this track of life like it's, it can be really really challenging especially not only that it's, that's also like I feel like the time in our in our lives when we're most likely to rebel against what a parental figure says just because it's what they say to us yes it makes a lot of sense um also I just realized that my math was horrifyingly wrong and we're both if we divide in half technically 17. 17. I thought um, of it too I, I was like were you just sitting here and we're both sitting here like going oh my god Robin's math in my like defense I have just turned 34 a few weeks ago and it hasn't fully like settled on me yet hey we are um, in the we're in the literary world we're allowed to be bad at math that's okay I feel like I am not, uh, just as somebody who's like, I come from a science background, but like, okay, I'll take it. I will definitely take that one. And for sure, I think sometimes adults saying what they want you to do suddenly feels a lot more permanent when you're going out into the world as like, quote unquote, an adult for the first time. Mm -hmm. And it's not just high school and things that feel temporary. It's the permanence of choosing what college you want to go to or what state you want to live in, moving out of the house for the first time, being a legal adult, like picking a major or getting a job or an internship. It suddenly feels like 
you need to transition from your childhood toward the path of an adulthood that's leading somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that can be really terrifying. Like I remember my family just always told me that I should be a lawyer. And there was a moment when I realized practically that that meant that I would be wearing a suit and like <laughs> pantyhose and going down to Wall Street every day to sit at a desk and doing like depositions and all of this research. And I was like, no, my God, what about my personality lends itself to a life like that? That sounds genuinely like misery inducing. And obviously like there are other versions of lawyer, but you know, when you're 18 and you realize the practical applications of what it is like to have something like a desk job or an office job or a job in a hospital where you're wearing scrubs and you're on your feet and you're physically like performing surgeries or procedures on people, it suddenly feels a lot different than just like the nebulous concept of the thing. And that can be, you know, that can be overwhelming and suddenly something that you thought you were passionate about, you realize is just something that you like, not something you want to be forever. Yeah, it's, it's so funny to say that, the, like the thing you like as opposed to the thing you want to be forever. Because like for me, where I went to college, and I have no regrets about where I, where I went to college, I loved it. Um, I was a baseball player and not like, like big time, like go to a division one on a scholarship, but like I could pick basically any of the smaller schools and I knew I would get to play and I, and so I could kind of do whatever I wanted. And I went on a bunch of visits, but I really, you know, after the fact I realized I ended up going to the school that was the first visit I went to. And it was probably just because it felt like that was my first impression of what a college campus looked like. So I was like, Oh, this is the standard. This is what it is. And the same thing with like, I studied communications in English and it's because my dad was in sales and owned his own business and my mom was a teacher. So I'm like, oh, well, communications is talking to people, which is kind of like sales and English is the thing that I'm, I'm, I like most in school because my mom taught it. And it's like, that's sort of just like how I carried on. And also because I feel like communications is the major that you take when you're like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. So I'll kick it down the road for four years. Yes, it's that or it's English for sure. Mm -hmm. Oh God, I just realized while you were saying that and it slightly blew my mind. I wound up going to the first college I ever toured mm -hmm. or visited. It wasn't the first one I visited on my like grand college tour. Yeah. Um, but I remember like my uncle went to Columbia for law school and I went and saw the campus with him when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. And he wanted to take a picture of me in front of the library on the sundial. And I was so embarrassed, you know, in the way that kids are when they're out with an adult and they think everyone is looking. And I was like, no, 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 no. And then of course, 10 years later, when I was a student there, I really wished I had that photo of myself mm -hmm. as a child. Oh my God. Like, I think I will regret that forever. But yeah, it was, it was the first time I was on a campus, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and it got in my head. Things yeah. get in your head. Well, and like I, the place I went is uh, John Carroll University here in Cleveland, Ohio. It's like a Jesuit college. I like to joke. I, my family's Catholic and I went to 12 years of Catholic school and then I went to college for four years at a graduate or at a Jesuit school. And then I went to graduate school at a Jesuit school. So like, I basically, I feel like I'm a shoe in like if all that, you know, if all the spiritual stuff exists, like I feel like they kind of have to let me in just because of how much, you know, Catholic schooling I went to. But it was like, um, it almost looked a little bit like Hogwarts in the sense it was like these big old stone buildings. And I'm like, as you know, being the person of the same age, we're like right in that Harry Potter, like wheelhouse. So I was the like, sweet oh my spot. God. Yeah, yes, like, when you said Harry Potter, I was like, literally when I was doing college tours, all I wanted to see were the dining rooms to check if they looked like yeah. Hogwarts and the library to check if it looked like Hogwarts. Exactly. Yeah, you want to see this stuff. So it was, it was like the first place I saw and I was like, okay. And again, I, you know, my entire life has been, 
based on where I ended up going to school and it that helped me get the job that I got and like, I love every how the way that it turned out but it's like it was just because getting back to what we're talking about it was because I followed what I thought I was interested in not because it was I knew it was something I wanted to do for a living so when you were in college you actually studied something well your path to becoming an author is really interesting because it started with books and then took like a super left turn, like you said, into, into science. Like, you, do you want to kind of tell people, I love your background. It's super interesting. Oh, sure. I mean, there's like the two hour version, but I'll try and make the very, very speedy version. I just thought- We're talking on a Friday afternoon. You can go as long as you want. I'll, I'm fine with that. It's fine. I, you know, uh, I'll try and make it speedy. It started actually with me applying to extremely ambitious colleges and not getting into any of them. Mm -hmm. um, I remember just, apply, I think like NYU was my safety school. And no, for real, you're laughing. Like my guidance counselor did not sit me down and say, be serious. And so when, uh, when all of the letters came, I was rejected from college. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a backup plan. I was writing novels in high school and everything, but obviously I hadn't sold them. I didn't have a literary agent. I was, you know, that, that teenager who's querying their books, yeah. um, not that teenager who has a professional career as a writer. And I had to apply to any colleges that had rolling admissions in mm -hmm. May of my senior year. And oh. so I really had no choice of where to go. So I wound up at Hofstra and the second I got there, I was working my way out. Like mm -hmm. I was applying as a transfer student to the schools that I had applied to the first time around. And I wound up getting a literary agent and a book deal my freshman year. And that helped. And I got in, you know, to everywhere that I had applied the year before. But of course, you know, it was a very different victory because it meant that my college experience was forever this different thing than I had wanted it to be coming in as a transfer student. Um, I think I wasn't even offered housing at a couple of places. So I wound up moving into an apartment alone at 19 in New York City, um, starting as a transfer student. I was at Columbia and I had a book deal with Random House. And then that book very quickly came out and was not successful. Mm -hmm. And I sold a few more books. I sold, I think, three more books that year on proposal. And um, Random House had bought, I think, too many YA books right mm -hmm. at the height of the beginning of YA Mania. I think it was like 2005 or so. So yeah. they canceled my deal. They said like, uh, we're just, we don't have the space to publish these books. It was devastating. And I was supposed to choose a major. And I, I had been thinking English. I had been studying for two years toward it being English. And at that moment, I was like, gosh, everything that I was working toward, everything that I wanted and dreamed of for myself, which was, you know, becoming like the next J.K. Rowling, it didn't seem very likely anymore. This yeah. was already like my second major failure in two years. Mm -hmm. So I just was like pre-med why not pivot hard you know <laughs> what's the thing that's the opposite of the thing that i seem to be failing at spectacularly and also what is a career where if you study it you get to do it for sure mm -hmm. like what is a safe bet yeah. and you know my parents were like lawyer 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 and i'm like no 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 no. like pantyhose no way it's not happening for me i was like doctor and i spent a lot of time in the er but i just kept like working toward it, but secretly writing books on the side. Mm -hmm. So I deferred medical school. I sold a fantasy series under a pen name, like right before I was supposed to start. Like I genuinely could not give up on being a novelist. And then that series was a disaster. I had 
an editor who was fired before I could even turn in the book, two editors who got cancer and retired in a row. Like, like this, this series was not happening. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't, I couldn't believe that like I kept getting so close and then being pushed so far away over and over again. So I really doubled down, committed to medicine, started at Penn Med, was doing um, my bioethics degree as well. So I was like getting my master's of biomedical ethics and all of that coursework out of the way. And I started writing another book. It was the beginning of everything. Mm -hmm. I got a literary agent for that. And then it's sold very, very quickly uh, at auction while I was, I think, just at the beginning of my second semester. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it felt like finally I was through the doorway of being a novelist and they weren't going to, you know, not let me through. Like they weren't going to be like, wait, are you supposed to be here? Maybe go around the block, circle a few times, come back. We'll see if there's space. Like it felt like it was really happening so I just like quickly finished up a master's degree. Uh, so I have my medical master's. I don't have my doctorate. So I mm -hmm. can't do anything in the <laughs> medical field because the master's is only applicable if you have your doctorate, which I uh -huh. don't, I'm not an MD. So I literally can't use it, uh, except uh, when I'm writing novels that have medical aspects or mm -hmm. like pitching a medical TV show or whatever wild things. So yeah, I, I kept trying to tell myself that the dream that was scary and the dream that seemed like it kept getting close and then not happening in the worst way possible was a dream that I should give up on and I should think mm -hmm. the practical thing. But, you know, I loved the practical thing. Like I love medicine. I think it's so rewarding and it's so fascinating, but it's not who I am forever mm -hmm. and it's not who I want to be every day. So it was surprisingly easy to walk away from that. But it does give you a way to approach stories that other people aren't capable of knowing about. For you've written about an epidemic, which you know we're sitting here during a pandemic, so you know it's close. Might, yeah, as I say, it might hit a little bit close to home. But like you, I feel like that does lend an ability. I think actually on your website you talk about how um, Sherlock Holmes like approaches medicine as a way like he doesn't practice it, but he can study it and he can apply that to how he solves cases and things. Like, do you feel like when you're writing your stories, you're coming at it from a scientific like aspect now, like having that background, not even just writing like about pandemics or things, but like writing out or laying out a story in a way you might lay out uh, an experiment or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely there is a scientific method to it. And, you know, Sherlock Holmes is a character who used his knowledge of medicine and his knowledge of forensics to tell himself a story about what might have happened at a crime scene or what might have happened um, when a client comes to him with a mystery or a problem. And I think I do that a lot. I think I use my background to tell myself stories about potential characters, because the first thing you do when you see a patient in the ER is you take a patient history. Mm -hmm. You listen to somebody tell you their story of what has led to them being here and what they think is wrong. And then you run tests and you figure out how to fix it. And I think a lot of character building is similar to that in that you come up with a character who has a problem and then you try and figure out what their story is, how much of what they think is true. And it's never all of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, every character sort of has a fatal wrong belief about the world that needs to be corrected for them to learn to grow and solve, 
you know, what the real problem is if you want to get super technical. And even if it's not a medical story, like, mm -hmm. and you don't live here, Sasha's fatal flaw is her ability to uh, fold away what she wants in order to try and make other people happy mm -hmm. because she's just so desperate to be liked by other people that she doesn't prioritize her own happiness very often. And um, yeah, I think you can apply all of these tactics very much so to just telling non-medical stories. I don't know if I, I mean, I'm certainly not sitting down, like I'm gonna measure out 10 cc's of, <laughs> you know, of sarcasm or anything like that. You know, like it's time to, you know, do an acid titration on this chapter. But I do do this thing that I call fiction autopsies, mm -hmm. which is uh, when I need to tear apart a story to see the structure of it at a base level. And I can put an entire story structure on one sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. And I do this for my books. And I do this for novels that I think are just so wonderful. I want to you know, take them apart like a microwave and just yeah. see how they function and then put them back together again. And um, what I do is I, I look, I number down the page, like chapter, like one through whatever, usually 30 something. And then I write a very short description of every scene that's in the story, even if it's just characters thinking about milk mm -hmm. and every like 20 pages, I bold like 20. And that way I can see how many pages are in each chapter, the length of scenes. Um, how many chapters and how many scenes are in each act. And if we're like changing point of views, where it goes back and forth, how often we have scenes that are thinking or scenes that are action or scenes that are talking. And you can just sort of see the structure of a story. And if you do this enough, um, and I do this when I'm editing, I can see where I've veered off course. Like if mm -hmm. I have a 5,000 word chapter, <laughs> it's just all talking, which is so a thing that I do. Um, I can see how to correct it. and. Mm -hmm. You know, you just get this overview. It's like, you know, doing an autopsy, I suppose. I was just going to say, you just basically, that's the most scientific way of writing a book I've ever heard in my entire life. So you could say, even if you didn't realize you were doing it, you're 100% using that background to write these stories. I am Sherlocking that shit. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, but that is super interesting because, and you said you do that for other novels too, like when you're reading someone else's that you're really enjoying. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. That's super interesting because that's something where I often think about how a writer created a story. And most times I can figure out like, oh, okay, this is probably the piece of an idea that they started with. And then there's been like one or two novels that I've read where I'm just like, I have no idea how they ever came up with this. And it's a flawless novel and well done. But like, that is extremely interesting. And I think for aspiring writers, that's a really you know, a unique way of looking at novels and being like, okay, how did this 320 page thing become a 320 page thing? Cause it's not, right. you don't start one day and just end up with a board doc where you just send it to someone magically. Like you do have to craft it. It sounds very much like you're a planner as opposed to a, a pantser when you're writing. I am. I mean, in the beginning, getting the voice down, you can't plan voice. Mm -hmm. You can plan plot. If you work at it hard enough. But until you understand, especially if you're writing in tight first person, which I do often, if you understand how a character is reacting to things, then you understand how they're choosing to tell a story and what they're choosing to narrate around because it makes them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in that way, you're sharing your character's truth. You're not just sharing the um, journalistic story, the impartial mm -hmm. story, because I think impartial stories are often very boring. 
it's, it's more exciting to have an emotion about the way a character is responding to what's happening to them. Mm-hmm. And I think the earliest time I remember realizing this was when I was reading the Princess Diaries in high uh-huh. school. Is this, you know, those books are fabulous and they're about a girl who does not want to be a princess. And all of these amazing things are happening to her and her reaction to all of them is embarrassment and hate and feeling uncomfortable. And I knew as a reader, I was like, are you kidding? If this were me, Mm -hmm. I would react this way. And I remember thinking, oh, that's important. I'm so engaged in this story because the characters' reactions are the opposite of what my reactions Mm -hmm. would be. And I'm trying to place myself into the story and I'm so fascinated by how she isn't me. And I think this was the first time I saw um, like really a window versus like a mirror character Mm -hmm. that I recognized in my head. But yeah, I mean, fiction autopsies or whatever we want to call them. Like if you do that, just to see the structure of a story that you like, um, I think it's really, really helpful to understand craft wise as a writer. Yeah, I love, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, oh, no, I, I, I was just like, you know, making a second end to my already finished <laughs> sentence, it's cool. No, but I really love this idea of like, you know what's going to happen to a character, but you might not know how they're going to react yet. Like, I think that probably makes the writing process for you really interesting too, because it doesn't feel like, all right, let's write this person from point A to point C over there. We just got to get them there. Like, I, I like the idea of being like, here are the major events that are going to happen to this person. And then kind of finding out in real time and shaping the character, like here's how they're going to react and maybe not knowing and knowing that you're still going to get over there to point C. But, you know, maybe point B is a little bit of a circuitous route. I think that probably makes for a more exciting like craft for you as you're going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's you know that a character is probably going to wind up, you know, kissing the person they have a crush on, but in terms of how they react in a scene, if something terrible has happened to them right before their crush texts them, their reaction to that text is going to be so different than if they were just having a normal day or a great day, you know? So for me, I can't write out of order. I know a lot of of authors who can, Mm -hmm. but if I ever try, and I have tried, like, believe me, I have tried to do, you know, messy first drafts. I have tried to do the skip around to write the things Uh you're excited about. I can't do it because I just need to be so emotionally close to the characters who I'm telling the story through just to understand what they're going through. And also if I, if I don't really track it closely, Mm -hmm. I wind up writing like five sad scenes in a row or like five happy scenes, Uh or it's just always Friday, which is a problem that I have. (laughs) <laughs> the next Friday, on Friday, oh. it's always Friday. Everyone's always in third period AP English, and it's always Friday. So, so you've got a Rebecca Black novel going on, is what you're saying. you got to get down on Friday. As she got to get down on Friday. No, I, I know what you mean, though. So I have a work in progress that I'm, I'm writing, and I was starting from the beginning, and I knew, like, the major plot points. And then one day, I was just like, I know how this is going to end. And so I wrote the last, like, I don't know, 10,000 words, and now as I have that, I have that like second, third that I need, like, to, and I'm the whole time I was like, shit, I got to get them to that last 10,000 words because I really like them. I'm like, why did I write this first? Why didn't I just like plot it out and just like, cause I do, I, I know exactly what you mean. It's like, if you do that, then you're trying to like shoot the gap and like figure out how to get them to that one specific space. You're probably better off just being like, these are the things that are going to happen to them. And when it happens, then I'll write it. But yeah, I, 
is. Right. Well, I mean, books are like inherently they have a plot structure to them. They're not as rigid as movies or TV shows where, you know, there's a certain budget and there's just a certain amount of minutes really. But, you know, they do have a structure to them. And what's interesting isn't really what happens, it's how it happens. Mm -hmm. So if you think of how it happens being how a character is reacting to what's happening, then of course you need to stick with them along the way chronologically, because if your experience as a writer is so different than how readers are meant to experience the story, I don't know, I think think a little gets lost in translation, especially the emotional impact. So when you're deciding to write a new story, like what, sparks an interest in you to spend you know a obscene amount of time with a specific story like what is it is it a personal experience or is it something you read about like is there something that you not particularly like I don't want to ask the like where do you get your ideas from because that's such a lazy question but like what is the kind of impetus for you when you want to write a story and spend a lot of time with these characters is there something that you need specifically I think I need a question that I found out the answer to a little bit later than I would have liked in life. Like if I could have a time machine and I could take all of my books and I could put them in and I could send them back to younger versions of myself, I absolutely would. And I think I know which versions of myself and which ages and which like enormous life crises each book is meant for. So I think I take a question that felt huge to me at the time Mm -hmm. and felt like an epiphany once I was able to answer it or realize that there wasn't an easy answer to it. And I assign that existential question to a character who isn't me, just to see how someone else is faced with that. And I mean, all characters are a little bit me. You know that I write like they're, you know, the Slytherin version of me or the Ravenclaw version Uh of me at 16 or at 18 or whatever like that. But I like to give them different life experiences a lot of the time and different tragedies and just sort of see how they react, how characters react to problems that they have to solve. And also, you know, for me, books that I think are entertaining and are interesting and contain a lot of the um, like interesting facts and trivia and things that I always look for in stories and all of the romance. But yeah, I I think it's not one thing. It's not, I want to write a book about an earthquake or I want to write a book about two girls falling in love. It's Mm -hmm. always so much more than that. And I think I like to write stories that have a central love story, but are essentially coming of age narratives Mm -hmm. because I feel like stories that are just love stories are too simple for me. Like I don't really need somebody in high school to find the love of their life forever, happily ever after the end. But I think I need them to find out who they are through a relationship or through a new piece of their identity. And a lot of the time that is first love or something similar. Um, And I think I need to watch them go out into the world after the story ends. Just more self-assured and confident and those are the types of stories that I like to tell. And usually they are set in Southern California high schools um, because, you know, those do well for me. And also I I went to a Southern California high school. Absolutely. But uh, my new one, like my secret new one that I can't talk about much yet is literally like 1600s London, um, Uh but same thing. Uh, So that's going to be really fun to get to. But yeah, I think, 
I think I really like writing about characters who have essential aspects of who I was at a crisis moment in my life. It's so funny you say that and talk about like going back in a time machine and like telling a certain aged you an answer to a question. I always feel like I should go back instead of talking to myself at a certain age, like talking to the friend or girlfriend or family member that I pissed off and like apologize and be like, hey, 17 year old Adam thought he knew what he was talking about. What an idiot. Totally wrong. Like I think about that a lot of times. Like I'll have, I have friends that I, that used to be like girlfriends in high school because now we are adults and mature and realize we were like idiots back then. But like, I still want to look at them and be like, I'm sorry. I, I was wrong in that argument we had when I was 18, which probably says a lot about like my internal panic. That's that adorable. That's the most Hufflepuff thing I've ever heard that you want a time machine so you can go back in time and apologize to I, people. I, I know. Well, ironically, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a Gryffindor according to all of the uh, this things, but I do like all the time I'll be like, oh man, what an idiot. You are such an idiot. It's like, I, and it's like weirdly the thing that I'm writing is a little bit, the like, main character, like you said, is a little a lot me but I'm making him be like overtly an idiot a lot of times just like because I feel like it's like me being like I'm gonna write this and apologize to all the people who know now they'll know how stupid I was but it is super interesting how like you think about that it's like going back and saying like okay here's the answer to that question that you had that felt huge at a certain time and maybe it was but there's no way of knowing the answer at 16 17 18 years old it's really really interesting yeah, thanks. Oh, also the thing you're talking about is, um, I like to call it writing characters that are emotionally autobiographical, mm-hmm. where you're not, you know, writing yourself into a story. It's not a Mary Sue moment, yeah. but you're taking a character whose emotional landscape is really, really close to what you can remember mm-hmm. as some, as like one of your emotional landscapes. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they don't share a lot of other character traits with you, but they share feelings. Yeah, that's really interesting. I love that. Um, so towards the end of our conversations, we love to ask uh, what we call the nerd nine. It's nine lighthearted questions. Um, I used to say rapid fire and then we would get all these emails from listeners that were like, Adam, you get on tangents, please stop saying rapid fire. And then we've since gotten emails of me describing it, saying this all the time. They're like, please stop describing it. So listeners really love when I do this part. Um, the first one is what's the last book you finished reading? Um, I just finished Stalking Jack the Ripper by Carrie Maniscalco. So good. I love her. She's actually been on the podcast a few times. She, uh, we're, like, she's never met my wife, but my wife loves those books. And uh, she'll like tell me when I see her now. She'll be like, tell her I said hello because of how much, it, yeah, it's, yeah, those books are fabulous. I love oh my God. I'm so excited. I can't wait to start the next one. And uh, I'm almost finished with Beach Read by Emily Henry. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? I am shameless and I love to read in bed. Um, I know I shouldn't do that. I love airplanes. I love reading on airplanes also because like you're trapped. What are you going to do? It's just, it's a great way to spend the time. And I think there is something really lovely about just putting a blanket on your, like on your lawn or in a park and just sitting in the sunshine and just falling face first into a novel. Yeah. Uh, What is the book that made you fall in love with reading? Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got to be Harry Potter, right? I mean, it's got to be. It's, it was so Harry Potter for me. Like, Harry Potter was probably the most enormous epiphany of my life. I was 12. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Listen, you don't need to justify it to me. I have a, like, my left forearm is a sleeve of Harry Potter tattoos, so I am right there with you. Totally understand. 
Um, what is one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to, which is pretty funny to ask right now since none of us can go anywhere. Oh, break my heart. No. Um, I think my answer is, hold on, I have to sneeze. <laughs> God bless you. I was like, thank you. Um, I have been accused of sneezing like a tiny woodland creature. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, you're definitely, it was very like fairy elven-esque. I won't lie. It's like the manic pixie dream girl of sneezes. <laughs> it's so bad. It's like, you know, somebody would rate my book one star if I had a character like sneeze. Oh, my God. Description like that. Um, yeah, it was, I let out a breath I didn't know I was holding and then sneezed like a woodland <laughs> creature. Um, <laughs> Oh, back to the question. Um, Prague, for sure. Prague is a, the one place that I haven't been that has been on my list for ages and ages and ages. I think a newer addition to that is Bali. Mm -hmm. uh, but I travel a ton, or I used to. It was definitely my thing uh, for a few years. Like my Instagram, it looks it looks like a travel blogger situation. Mm -hmm. I'm not even joking. Um, a couple of months ago, I was in Marrakesh. Um, and then Southern Spain, and I've been going to Paris to write and research this book a lot. So like travel is my jam, but still I have not been to Prague and it just seems so magical. Mm -hmm. All right. That's a really good one. I like that a lot. Uh, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Halloween. Uh, how about, that was really easy. That one was Halloween, easy. like no hesitation. Also, I'm Jewish, so we don't get like Christmassy Christmas. Uh -huh. um, so that one, that one always hurts a little bit, but <laughs> Halloween is amazing. Cause it's like a whole month of spooky and macabre now. Mm -hmm. Like when I was little, it was like a week and now it's like gotten bigger secretly. And yeah. it's just like a month to celebrate like all gothy things. And I'm so there. Yeah, no, I totally, I, I love, I always tell people, I love the seasons of holidays more. Like I love Christmas season. I love Halloween season. I love like the thing, like the holiday Thanksgiving season, like the actual days of are fine. But like, I just like, like you said, like the spookiness building up to it is almost, almost more fun than the actual day of, but. Oh yeah. That's the slow burn spooky. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, okay. Coffee or tea? I want to say coffee because I'm coffee obsessed, but I heard a really great answer once on a podcast and I'm just going to steal it. It was Nicola Yoon and she said um, coffee to start the day and tea to finish it. And I'm like, girl, you nailed it. That is exactly how I feel about those beverages. So coffee to start the day and tea to finish it. It's actually for me, it's coffee to start the day and then whiskey to finish it. Mostly lately. Anyway, it's just one of those. <laughs> I wish I were that badass. No, just ah. because I can honestly slam back a latte at one in the morning and then just mm -hmm. fall asleep but yeah. I have a suspicion that I shouldn't do that <laughs> I should like maybe choose a healthier habit probably yeah probably um cats or dogs dogs always yeah you have a tiny one we were talking about I, we uh, do. I have a tiny, tiny poodle named Penny and she is like the star of my insta stories right now and she is like so cute I cannot even <laughs> Uh, do you have a favorite food? I would say it's sushi. I miss sushi so much. We haven't been doing like any takeout food at all. I've been doing, I do like 100% of the cooking in our house and we haven't felt super comfortable getting takeout just for obvious reasons and especially sushi because it's raw and it's not cooked at all. And I miss sushi right now so much. It's, it's like, all, if I could have one thing right now, it'd be sushi. I that was how I felt. We didn't get takeout for a few months. We waited until May mm -hmm. and I was doing all of the cooking, like every meal. 
And I just, I love sushi and especially being in LA, like the sushi yeah. here is amazing. And then on my birthday, it was like, what do I want? And my answer was sugar fish, please. And we picked up the boxes and, you know, they're very like ethical and we were mm -hmm. reading about what they're doing with healthcare for their workers yeah. and everything at their company. So we felt like it was a good business to support and it was really safe and oh yeah. my God, I have missed sushi. Oh, I miss it so much. It's I'm sorry nice. I had to taunt you with this. No, sushi. no, it's okay. It's okay. I, I, you know, we'll get it again soon. Um, okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from You Don't Live Here? I hope the book makes them braver or inspires them if they're looking for inspiration to share their truth or live their truth. And I hope it makes them laugh. And I hope it makes them think. That's absolutely perfect. Robin, this was so much fun. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. This was a blast. I love this podcast. So like I am, my inner fangirl is here. Hello. I'm so glad to be on it. And uh, oh, this was great. Uh, readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in marketplace professional book nerds is proud to be an evergreen podcast signature program to learn about other evergreen podcasts visit evergreenpodcasts.com our podcast is produced recorded and edited by adam sokol and jill grunewald and presented by rakuten overdrive for more information visit professionalbooknerds.com History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.